Welcome back to the Digging the Grits podcast. My name is Brandon Shaw. I'm your host. Now, this last week, November 9th, 2023, marks the 30th anniversary of Midnight Marauders by A Tribe Called Quest. I just released a video on YouTube breaking down this whole album. So much fun. I love this album. And one of the people responsible for the sound of this album and the previous album, Low End Theory, is Bob Power. Bob Power is a legendary engineer and mixer who's worked with, if you watch Digging the Greats or if you listen to this podcast, you've definitely heard his work. I mean, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, Jungle Brothers, D'Angelo, Erica Badu, The Roots, the list goes on and on. In my conversation with Bob, he shares about his work with Tribe on the Low End Theory and Midnight Marauders, how he started in music, what he's up to now, and even gives some mixing tips. So let's just get right into it. Here's my conversation with Bob Power. Well, Bob Power, thank you so much for uh, sitting down and talking with me. I, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, man. Yeah. Um, I got a lot of stuff I'm very excited to, to talk to you about. Um, yeah. Take me, I mean, your credits, it's all the way through uh, some of my favorite stuff between uh, Native Tongue stuff and then Soquarian stuff and beyond. Um and your you being the engineer and mixer on this stuff means that sort of your ears are the the final test that a lot of this music uh is going through and if it and you're making it uh you're sort of fine-tuning the the stuff on its way out um so yeah um take me from the beginning um how you got into engineering because i know initially you were studying jazz is that right yeah i was a working musician for 20 years um so going all the way back to the beginning i used to find tape recorders in my dad's junk pile in the basement in the 50s in the early 60s but i didn't know what to do with them other than press the buttons and see what happened yeah um and i played bad rock guitar by ear in high school Ended up um, getting a Bachelor of Music in Classical Composition in college because I just didn't know what else to do. I didn't really mm. want to be an English major. Yeah. Um, this is a long story made very short. Um, <laughs> moved to San Francisco for seven or eight years. Ended up doing a bunch of TV scoring out there. So that was where I was really in the studios a lot. Um, in college, a little bit, but uh, once I hit San Francisco, um, I was in the studio every week with the schedule and stuff that had to get done. So I learned yeah. a lot of stuff that way. And I was not engineering at that point, although I was always really interested in it. So I was bugging the engineer saying, Neil, why are you doing that, man? You yeah. know, why'd you use that piece? What are you doing? And um, so then I moved back to New York in 82 because I kind of knew I had to move to L.A. or New York to move ahead. Yeah. Um, scuffed around, was producing vanity records for people, um, doing small productions, uh, What still wasn't engineering. Uh, and then there was a studio I was working at because it was the cheapest place in town. It was called Calliope. 
And um, the engineer who worked for me at that studio was going away for a couple of weeks. And the owner said to me, he came up, he said, do you want to fill in for Bob? His name was Bob, too. Do you want to fill in for Bob while he's gone? And that was one of those moments where you say, well, I really I'm not sure what I'm doing, but I'm going to say yes. So I said yes. And that was the beginning. Um, A lot that that was, I guess, the mid to late 80s. And uh, a lot of the native tongues and the sort of not post Curtis Blow New York uh, hip hop was coming through the studio at the time. You know, there's a thing if you want to get if you want to see what kind of music is bubbling under and going to be like the next big big thing, go to the cheapest studio in town because people don't have money on the way up. Yeah, um, and that's where I met Dela and Tribe and Black Sheep and just the whole crew, the whole yeah. crew. Um, ended up becoming a really busy freelancer in the city, engineering and mixing. And then there was a point where I started producing again. And I it was before D'Angelo's first record. Um, and so pretty much I wasn't really available for a long time between the early 90s and the you know, from the early nineties on my production career was going pretty well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I pretty much said to people, look, I'm just mixing or producing these days. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of how my career evolved. Yeah. Um, well, so, I mean, the, the, um, sort of the big record that, uh, people talk about a lot with you is low end theory. Um, mm-hmm. and of course that is a, a monumental record. Um, but can you tell me about, so I'm doing a video on, uh, midnight Marauders and that's coming out next week. Um, so can you tell me about the approach? Cause they're, they're different. And I know there's some stuff with, as far as isolation with the samples. Um, can you tell me about the approach on midnight Marauders following up low end theory and then what the, the overall sort of attitude going into it was um, because they, they do sound a little different. Well, yeah, on purpose. Um, I spent a lot of time on the low end theory um, sculpting the elements. So it almost sounded like people were sitting down and playing it, but they never would because they all came from different records. And that's where the coolness of the feel comes in. Yeah. Um, and part of that was because I was fairly new to it. And I thought, oh, this is a really complex musical construction. Let me make sure people can dig it for that. Yeah. Um, so I would never do that now because I feel like the the grunge and the noise from nasty samples is actually part of the cool factor. But at yeah, the time yeah. I was like, okay, let me make this sound like people sit down, sat down and played it. Yeah. Um, Tip and Ali both came to me before Midnight Marauders. And I remember one time them saying very directly to me, listen, we want this to be like a gritty street style record. So don't clean things up. Yeah. So it was really by design. Um, yeah. Yeah. Part of the reason that um, getting my level right, sorry. It's oh, yeah, no, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> um, part of the reason why 
the low-end theory was such a groundbreaking record, and the first record as well, going into Midnight Marauders, was you have to remember what sampling was like at the time. I mean, it started out where all people could sample would be a kick and a snare separately, yeah. you know, boom, cack boom, cack, and that was it. No longer loops. Anything longer you heard was cut in by a DJ. Um, so as sampling time increased, the constructions got more and more complex. Uh, and it's just an interesting phenomenon about um, technology informing the art form. Nobody yeah. really thinks about it, but that was really responsible for the more and more complex constructions of hip hop tracks. Yeah. Uh, so by the time Midnight Marauders came around, I think we were up to, you know, with, with memory enhancements up to six or 10 seconds of sampling time in different samplers. Something you have to remember though, I think by that time, Tip and Ali had their own studios mm -hmm. in their places. But for the most part, until then, nobody had enough gear to be able to hear the realization of what they heard in their head before they got to the studio. Yeah, yeah. Because in the studio, it was painstaking. You know, if there was a one-bar drum loop, we would sample the first half, boom, cack, kakum, and then lay that down onto one track or two-inch tape, and then take the second half of that bar, boom, cack, kakum, kakum, cack, and so we'd have boom, cack, and then gung gung kak on a different track, and we'd have to put oh, those wow. together. So these guys, the amazing thing to me, and it's more amazing as time goes on and I think about it, yeah. is that uh, Tip and Ali and everybody involved heard these constructions in their head before they had a chance to actually hear them coming out of some speakers. Yeah. And it's an amazing feat of conceptualization, I think. Yeah. So anyway, on Midnight Marauders, um, there were very specific instructions of not to clean it up too much. Yeah. Or at yeah. all, really. Yeah. Um, what is your approach? Because you did, I mean, you, you said you weren't engineering when you were doing the, the TV stuff, but coming from the, like, quote unquote, more traditional you studio world. Legit. Uh, sure, legit. Yeah. Uh, the uh where you do certain do things a certain way that's not sample based um how is your approach different between like and and you have done sessions with live instrumentation of course but how is your approach different either in mixing or in the engineering uh if it's all live instruments versus if it's all sample stuff um speaking of all that stuff pass once said to me pass from dela said to me i know you got two music degrees but we're going to teach you something else. Um, <laughs> it stuck with me, or we're going to unlearn you or something like that. It was yeah, really funny. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you know him, but he's a very clever guy and a very great guy. Yeah. Um, it, for me to sort of unlearn a lot of the ways to quote unquote, do something well or good was an interesting proposition. And that's one of the reasons I was actually fascinated in the music. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of engineers at the time in New York, kind of old, old school engineers who were used to doing things with microphones and studio musicians who came in, read the chart down and were out in an hour. Yeah. Um, they kind of, a lot of people said, oh, this shit's not music. And coming from a jazz head, which I'd done when I got my master's in San Francisco, all I wanted to do was play jazz. Yeah. Um, 
so coming from that direction, I kind of had the ethic of if it's different and I don't like it, it's probably because I'm not trying hard enough or I don't get it. So I think it was incumbent upon me to feel like, okay, well, let me find out what the ethic behind this music is. Uh, It helped that all the people I worked with, most of the people I worked with were just really great people. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. The community really um, accepted me and supported me in a really great way. Yeah. And not because I was down. I think just because... Like they knew that I was there to help them along and make their dreams come alive, not my own. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, logistically speaking, because I'm I'm curious. You mentioned the the sampling the first part of a drum break and then the second, <laughs> and then you got it on two different tracks. Logistically, if you're mixing something, and I know that obviously the the this process has changed dramatically with uh, digital workstations and all of this, but uh, speaking for like that time, what is that? What does this specific layout look like if you're mixing a track like that? Like if you've got that drum sample on split between two different tracks, or then you've got a bass sample or some other instrument versus the vocal, like how many tracks are you expanding out to now or then? Uh, then well then we were working on two inch tape and it was 24 track but because we had time code which for those people who don't know it's a synchronization code that you print on one track of the tape and you couldn't use that track and you also couldn't use the track next to it because there was bleed over and you'd hear this like computer tone along with whatever you put on the track so so really we were down to 22 tracks um and it was kind of a sleight of hand, uh, yeah, because the music got pretty complicated. And plus, we would hide in other samples behind a loop. For example, if there was a drum loop, uh, we'd sneak, we'd program a sn- kick and a snare that we'd put behind the loop, and you didn't hear it as a separate element, but you just say, "Wow, that kick and the snare is really slamming." Yeah. So there was a lot of sleight of hand involved, and it was. Because the tech, uh, technology was so primitive then, it was really um, a lot of work, man. Yeah, I, I can imagine. <laughs> um, so, for example, um, one of the tricks is say we had a drum loop with a kick and a snare, and you wanted some low frequency for the kick and some upper mid-range for the snare. Well, you'd bring that back on one channel of the mixing desk, which had a gazillion channels, then take the same thing in another channel and low pass it, meaning take all the highs out. So all you had was boom, 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 you know, the real deep stuff. And likewise on the second channel or the third channel, take out all the lows. So all you had was the really bright stuff and kind of mix that in behind the, the loop itself to add those components to it rather than just taking a couple of EQs and start to crank them, which has its limits. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just love the evolution of I mean with with low end theory and with um Midnight Marauders all of that layering in there. There's listening to it, it I, I don't know. It's it it feels magic. Um, that's t- that's Tip and Ali, you know, really um I've been teaching for the last 20 years and 
people come with all different kinds of music. And basically, a great record is a compelling performance of a good song, period, in any style that's true. Yeah. Uh, and they were great songs. They were great conceptualizations and great performances. So um, at that point, the uh, direction is to not fuck it up. Let right, me make right. sure this comes through well. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it. It uh, you being the the studio technology guy and figuring all that out is, is I think, drawing out their the best in them because engineering too. I mean, uh, I think there's the there can be the misconception of it's just like you're the guy behind the desk pushing the buttons when. I've been in many sessions where it's sort of a, a psychological, like, I don't know, uh, trying to pull the best performance out of the performer. Without um, telling them that. Ex exactly, yes. You know, I, I would phrase that, it's the same thing, but I would phrase it creating the environment that they can do their best in. Yes, yeah. And I think that's the the most artistic end of of engineering is being the one who is there to, to draw that out and, and, and have that environment for them. Yeah. It's really facilitation. Yeah. Um, and it's funny. It always takes a different form. You never, you never approach the same thing in the same way on two separate days. It's impossible. Yeah. So you just have to stay open. Yeah. Um, but doing all that and making sure the technical end of things was together at the same time, that was the trick. Yes. You know, trying things that hadn't really been tried before with samplers and drum machines and uh, making sure that the technical end of it was together at the same time. Because, again, stuff was a lot more primitive then. With yeah. DAWs now, with workstations, if you record something super low level, it's not the end of the world. But in those days, you had a lot of noise coming off the tape. It's, you know, if you played back a two inch tape with no music on it, it sounds like Niagara Falls. It's <laughs> um, so we had that to worry about. All the analog gear would distort very easily if you yeah. weren't careful. So there was a lot of stuff, a lot of things to keep track of, Yeah, which was part of the fascination. Plus, I think it was a mutual education where the the guys would hit me to what they were after and why. And I would let them know about my end on the studio and how that interfaced with what I had to do. So we yeah. all learned, you know, a good production is when everybody comes away knowing some stuff that they didn't when they went yeah. in. Yeah. And what that stuff is, is pretty broad some of it has to do with people relationships some of it has to do with musical relationships some of it has to do with people and music yeah definitely um well tell me about your uh your involvement with then like the later 90s uh because i know you worked on uh the roots erica badu uh common stuff um, did that, was that sort of a natural evolution coming out of the stuff you'd previously done? I guess so. Um, I, undergrad in college, I always played in soul bands. So soul music and funk music was sort of part of my DNA. So that yeah. worked out really well. Um, 
again, staying open was a thing. I think doing part of D'Angelo's first record, yeah, uh, producing some of that, uh, half of that, uh, opened up a lot of doors that people, like-minded people noticed that record and said, wow, this sounds really cool. Let's try to get Bob. Yeah. And I, and I think, too, with – I think I've heard Questlove say that, I mean, knowing that you had done the Native Tongue stuff, that's then like a no-brainer. If, if yeah. they're you know, inspired by that, then they, they want to get the man who, who was there for that as well. You know, it's funny. I see it. I heard something that, that Dr. Dre said something about it, too, as a sonic model. I think Tip told me. I'm not sure. But, you know, it's just music, and you're just trying yeah. to do the best job you can. A lot of people, it's really funny. Um, I get, in interviews, I get a lot on a lot of different records, did you know you were making a classic? Yeah, yeah. And, I think every time you record something, you feel like it's the greatest thing in the world. You have to. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So like-minded people found me. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, let me see. Uh, you've started, uh, you didn't, I don't think you did initially, but you've done more mastering uh yeah. later in your career yeah. um can you tell me i mean i i feel like mastering is uh i know on on a basic level what it what it is and what it does uh but i feel like it is still has uh, a little bit of a mystery about it uh cuz i know obviously it sounds better and we're we're taking it all the way to the maximum levels but can you i feel like you'll be able to explain this very well the importance of mastering and then can you speak to like have you seen mastering change as far as with the mediums between records oh, yeah. tapes cds digital all of that yeah um you know when people who don't know about it ask me, I say, well, in mastering, you make it sound better and you make it as loud as it can be. I mean, yeah. that's, that's kind of the, the bottom line, although it involves a lot more than that. How you do those things is the trick. Yeah. Uh, different media are really, really important because different media can take different kinds of level without, uh, with different repercussions of putting too much level. And people say, well, what's the loud? I understand they're making it sound better, but what's the loud thing about? Well, that yeah. goes all the way back to like 70s rock records where, you know, rock was sort of a macho thing and everybody wanted their record to sound louder than everybody else's because it was yeah. bigger, badder, and bolder. The other thing is uh, everyone wanted their record to be a little louder on the radio. So people like dug it more and think it was, thought it sounded better. There's a, yeah. there's a fairly immutable rule of human physiology that says if you hear exactly the same thing twice, but one is uh, imperceptibly louder than the other, like 99 out of 100 people will say the louder one sounds better. Hmm. So that's part of it. And uh, part of it was producers really and labels really wanted their stuff to pop coming off the radio, even though there are limits of that. Um, yeah. We are, we got into something called the loudness wars in the nineties where everybody tried to get their record louder than everybody else's. And there's some, I'm not going to get into the technical stuff, but just as a listener, 
there's some sonic repercussions of that. Yeah. It gets harsh. Uh, the attack transients, the uh, sharp attack of percussive stuff gets uh, distorted. And those both lead to listening fatigue. And most people don't yeah. think about it, but subconsciously it affects you. And this is one of the things I try to impress on my students is that if it's fatiguing to listen to, people aren't going to want to listen for that long. They won't know why. Yeah. But distortion uh, creates listening fatigue. Yeah. And super high levels, unless you're really careful, lead to different kinds of distortion. You know, how much you can get away with for the track and the media and the um, genre is really one of the tricks. Yeah. But it's not all about loudness these days because streaming services pull them all down so that playback sounds somewhat the same for the different, uh, for records mastered at different loudness levels. Yeah. Are, is is um so that's for streaming is there any notable difference between media i know like i guess without getting like super far into the technical stuff uh between a record and a tape or a cd yeah there are what's the most noticeable differences well there's a bunch of stuff you just have to pay attention to particularly bass information is one thing you know on a record remember that the needle is scribing uh, a groove that is analogous to the sound wave in the air and bass sound yeah. waves are really big and take up a lot of energy. So number one, you can't fit as much music on one record because the needle is wiggling wider to reproduce those bass frequencies. If there's too much on one side or the other, it can actually break through the groove into the next adjoining groove. So oh. you have to really watch stuff like that. Phase becomes an issue as well. Um, that's, I'm, it's a long explanation. Um, but sibilance becomes an issue as well. Uh, the nature of dragging a needle through a piece of plastic to etch wiggles into it creates a lot of high frequency uh, noise and forms of distortion on its own, even with no music there. If, if they don't condition the playback properly, it'll sound like... <laughs> but much higher frequency, like shh. Like when you listen to an old jazz record from the late yeah. 20s or 30s and there's all this static and clickiness before the music starts, yeah. that's yeah. what's there anyway, whether you put music onto it or not. They do a lot of interesting things now to get rid of it. But um, mm -hmm. So that, that's some of the stuff you have to think about. Yeah, uh, yeah. Vinyl becomes less of an issue all the time, although it's having a resurgence now. It is possible to uh, master something that'll work pretty well everywhere. Okay. You just have to think about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, are, do you approach a project now or, or more recently with the medium in mind? No. I approach it with the music in mind and what the ethic of the music is. That's mm. what's always driven me. That's what's always informed me. Yeah. Um, what style of music is it tells me what it wants to be. You know, yeah. you wouldn't make a folk record as loud as a Metallica record. And I say Metallica because that one album was sort of a, the pinnacle or the um, 
nadir of the loudness wars. They did an album that apparent that is so loud, but it's really distorted as well. Mm. So anyway, genre makes a difference. Um, yeah. There's a range of how aggressive you can be on the loudness front. And for music that doesn't want to be that aggressive, you don't go there. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I may be the wrong guy to answer, ask about this. Um, I started mastering because I was tired of my clients getting treated like shit by mm. certain mastering houses. Um, I do well at it most of the time, but... Uh, I don't consider myself an authority on it, but I've been doing it for a while and a lot of people are very happy. So it works. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, speaking of loudness, I've heard in interviews before you talk about uh, mixing at a low volume. Um, do you, you specifically mix at a low volume? Well, as one who suffers from tinnitus now, which is that mm. ringing in your ears when you listen yeah. to too much loud music, uh, I listen at different volumes. I, my average listening level now is a little louder than it used to be just because of my age. Um, but uh, it's really important when you're mixing to keep checking how does it sound really loud, how does it sound really soft. And it's funny, yeah. I'm teaching some modules on that in my production classes at NYU right now. And one of my things is if you put it on the big speakers, the wall-mounted speakers, and really turn it up loud, the vocal should sound a little too quiet. You should, you mm. know, it should sound like, gee, we need to turn up the vocal a little bit. And if you put it on small speakers and turn it way down, the vocal should sound a little bit too loud huh. just because of the dynamics of the low end. Yeah. Um, so if you have both those things, it's probably just in the right place. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, yeah, that's fascinating how that works because there's sometimes when I'll be listening to like something on the radio and it'll be very low volume and I'm hearing the pitch, uh, before the vocal comes in, mm. I'm hearing the pitch one way and then the vocal comes in and then I go, wait a minute, they're in the wrong key or something. And then I turn it up and then it makes yeah, more sense like after hearing doing it. this with your headphones. Yeah. Um, it's it's a different phenomenon. That's because of Doppler effect, but the pitch changes when you do this with headphones. Yeah. Um, and the reason that the vocal seems louder at low volumes and a little quieter at high volumes is at low volumes, the thing that comes through most where our hearing is most sensitive is the mid range. And that's where the voice is. Uh, yeah. Evolution works in really interesting ways. Our hearing happens to be most sensitive where uh, in the frequency range of, where our speaking voice is. So yeah. when you turn it way down, that's going to be the thing that pokes through. Yeah. And when you turn it way up, the low end comes up. The bass, the kick, all the low frequency elements start to speak a lot better when you turn it up really loud. Yeah. Uh, because those are big waves, take up a lot of energy, so you really have to crank it to hear them in their full glory. Um, right, right, right. So that's why the, the vocal seems to recede sometimes when you play it real loud on a big speaker system. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. These are just things that, you know, I wake up in bed thinking about. Uh, remember, <laughs> I have two music degrees. I've never taken an engineering class in my life. Yeah. Uh, do you think that that, because um, I mean, you're teaching now at yeah. NYU. Do you think that and then through your career, I mean, the stuff 
from like Stetsasonic, uh, all the tribe stuff, uh, De La, Fushnikins, all the way through Soulquarian stuff. Um, th- I mean, that stuff was, it was its own new wave. Um, and so they wanted to do some things and you helped them figure out how to do that. Do you think that your actual lack of uh, engineering education helped what was like a, a superpower so that you weren't inhibited by the way that things quote unquote should be uh, a little bit of both, you know, probably it helped that I wasn't formally educated, but by the same token, the stuff that I learned was really true and you could fuck it up very easily by not following a certain set of confines. Yeah. So my, uh, my goal was to help the people realize the music and figure out a way around those confines. Yeah. Yeah. In service of the music, you know? Yeah. 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 I think I know the answer to this, but do you have any, um, favorite or standout projects of things that you've worked on? Um, I love them all and people take this (laughs) the wrong way. I'm paid to love stuff and it's not like I'm a mercenary, but that's part of my job is to put every fiber of my gut into yeah. the project. So uh, I love everything. Um, there's one record I did that sounds really incredible, uh, I think. And it's very legit. Um, Michelle and Degiocello, who I've worked with a lot, yes. uh, did a record called Dance of the Infidel. And it's, it's her take on a jazz record with a lot of major jazz artists as guests on the record. And we cut that in a studio with the kind of classic recording desk and with a sort of a sonic model in mind that was that I kind of set up to sound really great and not just clear, clear and big and warm and present and really engaging to listen to. Uh, so I, I love that record. I think that record sounds really good, but they also, you know, they yeah. sound okay. Yeah. Well, I like that, uh, that you said, um, you know, when you're making it, you think it's the greatest thing in the world and that's, uh, you should think that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. And so, because then that's the opposite of sort of being a mercenary that you're saying, cause you're like, everything has led to this and then you have that one and then you move on to the next one. Yeah. Um, and then that, that keeps it, fresh and keeps yeah because i can see the the clear evolution of stuff that you have touched uh and one thing leads to the next and i think because of that um uh another by the way there's another one of michelle's records that sounds really good peace beyond passion um but you know they all sound good and i like i said i love them all one of the reasons not one of the reasons the reason michelle's stuff sounds really good is michelle yeah. because she's a real artist yeah have there been times where because you're talking about the the 22 tracks and you're sort of building it all out and you're thickening stuff up behind it um cuz i know like dilla specifically has had some more stuff that's like just out of the box and he doesn't want too much finessing or tweaking of the, the mix out of the MPC. You know, in a way I feel like Dilla's sonic concept and mine are right in the same cut. 
uh, because he had one of the ways in which he was brilliant was he had an amazing way, unspoken way, but it was it was always right on the mark of using materials where the frequencies were portioned in such a way that the song sounded really good to begin with. Yeah. Um, so he was, you know, he, I, I think unconsciously or consciously, he chose samples not just for their musical content, but for their frequency content. Yeah. So mixing his stuff was never a nightmare where somebody wanted me to create something that wasn't there on the tracks. Yeah. It was always very clear in the direction he meant it to go. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of people don't like my work because they say it's too clean. But that, yeah, it's mm. okay. Yeah. My well, mother's happy. <laughs> um, so tell me what you're doing now. So you're at, you're at NYU. Um, tell me about that. And then tell me any more recent projects that you're excited about. Um. I'll get the professional stuff out of the way first. I'm still mixing and mastering because I can do it yeah. on my own terms. Um, I'm really busy a lot, and I don't have time to sit in the studio for three or four weeks with people. So like many people, people send me stuff. I send it back. They give me com comments. We send it back and forth. Yeah. Um, so mixing and mastering is a constant. I produce something every couple of years because I really like the people. Plus, yeah. one of the reasons I don't have enough time for that often is my time at NYU. I'm a full-time professor at the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music. That's a, that's a mouthful. But a bunch of really, really great, very accomplished people all pointed in the same direction. So it's, it's great. And ultimately, we're just there to help the students. That's the bottom yeah. line. And it's an incredibly liberating um, platform from which to operate. You know, when the only reason it's kind of like mixing for people or recording people. The only reason you're there is to help them. Yeah. So it takes away a lot of the bullshit of human motivation. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Like I want to do this because it'll mean I'm great. Right. Right. You know, right. That's off the table. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Sorry for getting philosophical on you, man. No, no, I I love it. I love getting. You should see me after a glass of wine. <laughs> what what time is it in in New York right now? It's not too not, early. Not time yet. Not time yet. <laughs> um. Uh, here's I got a fun question for you. Um, do you remember the the six CD changers in cars? where it would be like a block and you put, put six in there and then you got to like slide it in. And then it, it just, it's a big pain to change the CDs. Um, so I've asked this to a few other guests. Uh, you got six CDs is sort of a desert Island, uh, but just six. So you put them in your car and that's it. Um, and you can't take them out. So six, six albums. What would you put in your, um, in your CD changer? Uh, that's like saying, who do I love the most, man? I can't, I, it's really <laughs> hard to do. I've been listening to a lot of Louis Armstrong the past 10 years, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of early jazz, because it's just fascinating to see how brilliant these people were. You know, yeah. 
Louis Armstrong was like Monk for me, like Thelonious Monk. I listened to it for years and I said, oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. That's really great. And then one day, and a lot of this happens with a lot of different kinds of music to a lot of people. One day you listen to it and you go, oh, my God, it's the same thing you've listened to hundreds and yeah. hundreds of times before. And it just hits you in a certain way where you realize the brilliance of it. And that's where I am with, uh, with Louis Armstrong these days. But yeah. I've been listening to a lot of classical music as well. So it's... It's really hard to say. You have to understand, after having music blasting me in the face 16 hours a day for much of my career, listening to yeah. music recreationally is not always at the top of my list. Totally, yeah. You know, just Absolutely. saying. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, on the, on the classical end, uh, what composers are you listening to? Uh, wh wh whoever they play. I've been listening to a lot of string quartets. Okay. So Brahms, uh, Beethoven, uh, more modern stuff, uh, Bartok, uh, Ravel wrote some really interesting string quartets. It's interesting yeah. to see how classical composers that are known for a particular really big orchestral sound, how they translate that down to a string quartet because there's no place totally. to hide. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I grew up playing, uh, and I still do, uh, upright bass. Oh. Um, so I, so classical all the way through playing in symphonies and all that. Um, but yeah, for me, the, the thing that breaks my heart about string quartet stuff is there's no bass. So I'm always like, oh, if we can get st string quintet, uh, and that's probably just, you know, the we need to the tell those people for the yet. last 400 years, what they've been missing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, oh, I, I have to be real with you though. At the same time, you're probably good at it because you played that music a lot. But with uh, jazz and session bass players, the last thing you usually want them to do is pull out a bow. Yes. Just because it's, yeah, it's a different, it's completely different skill set. Yeah. For sure. That's yeah. kind of a joke on bass players, but I'm laughing just a little bit. <laughs> well, I feel the same way about uh, electric bass players who are primarily electric and then just go, oh, I can play upright. This is not a big deal. It is a, it is a different beast and a totally. different instrument. Yeah. And there's a lot of similarities, uh, but doing one well does not mean, and vice versa, doesn't mean you can do the other one well. Right. Um, I mean, it serves the same function in, in a track yeah. usually, but um, yes. totally different beast. Yes. And, and upright bass is a monster. Yes. Uh, I have my, actually my fingers, um, if I compare my two index fingers, you can actually kind of almost see it on the thing, on the video. My uh, right finger is partially curved this way, just from years and years of jazz playing. Yeah. Just yeah. plucking like that. But yeah, um, it will, <laughs> it'll mess you up for sure. There was a period I was playing so much guitar that I never had to cut the nails on my left hand. Because they were always on a fingerboard. <laughs> that's that's crazy. Did you ever have the? Uh, I guess that's not a jazz thing, but did you ever have um, like long nails on your right hand for guitar? You know, I I tried to master classical for a short time, but I I when I was doing sessions and stuff, I left my nails a little bit long in case somebody asked me for stuff. But yeah. if they're too long, it gets a little weird too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I have no nails for the, for the bass playing. Uh, you still play? Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's great, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, I play, um, well, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll, 
I'm a little too humble talking about stuff, but uh, yeah, I mean, I play, I'm a, a freelance bass player, uh, electric and upright. I play all kinds of stuff. And then the, the big credit is uh, with Nas. Um, so there's, he's on tour right now. There's no bass on it, but um, anytime they bring out the full band, like we did uh, Madison square garden in uh, February. And then he also, how I initially got on that was, um, he does the Illmatic live with the orchestra. Um, and so they needed someone who could play electric and upright. Um, and I knew the keyboard player, so he, he, um, got me in. Um, and so, yeah, that's, uh, that's a great gig. And, you know, Nas is one of the people I talk about or think about when I think about a real artist, you know, somebody yes. who does something that had never been done in that way before. And yes. it's dope. Yes. Getting those it's very easy to do something that hasn't been done before, but have it be universally great is tough. Like yeah. Joni Mitchell, Stevie Wonder, they created yeah. their own musical idiom. Yeah. And then his uh because the thing we did in uh February, that was all his newer stuff. So the the newer stuff he's done with Hit Boy, he's having like a crazy resurgence. Um I think they did six albums in i want to say it was three years um wow. and it's all really 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 cool stuff oh that's great um, man. yeah uh the king's disease there's two three of them and then magic uh there's there's three of those um but yeah they're i mean it's for me it's fun to play and then also uh he's at the top of his game and like really loves what he's doing and um yeah even like preparation for that show like it was it was a lot like he was he's not messing around that's great um, it's really cool to hear yeah it's it was nice uh, when people you experience. really admire turn out to really be all that you know yes and he he absolutely is yeah yeah i could i could keep going but i mean is there anything um that you specifically want to talk about uh or promote or anything like that um, no um just be kind to people you know be kind and gentle <laughs> with people we need that in the world right now we need yeah. a lot more understanding than what's going on that's for sure yes yeah if i can um pay you a compliment um you seem to deflect compliments um but if i can pay you <laughs> see there we go if i can pay you a compliment uh i think uh your your uh strength is not only um sonically figuring stuff out in the studio and mixing and being being uh partially responsible especially sonically for a lot of uh, albums that a ton of people love, but then also your humility um, and respect towards other people, uh, knowing that it's a collaborative process and knowing putting the music first, putting them first. It, like you've been doing that this entire interview. Um, and so I'm going to compliment you on your attitude towards that because uh, I think that makes a huge difference. Um I think it's something that if you play in bands, you learn really quickly that yeah. it's not about you, it's about the music, and you got to play the music. You know, the best live players often are the ones you don't notice. 
because yes. they're laying into the pocket so much that they're not yeah. drawing attention to themselves. People who want to draw attention to themselves usually don't fit in the music that well. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we have music to thank for a lot of things. Bob Power, thank you so much for your time, um, for diving into your catalog and then some of the philosophy of mixing stuff. Uh, really great to talk to you. Um, thank you for all of your work uh, and thank you for, for your time today. Well, nice to talk to you as well. Thank you. Thank you again so much to Bob Power. Hey, two quick things before you go. If you made it to the end of this podcast, this is going to be definitely relevant for you. The first thing is I just announced that I've made official Digging the Greats shirts. They're super high quality. You just got to go check them out. They're awesome. I got two different designs. I'm so happy with how they turned out. So if you want one of these, go to diggingthegreats.com right now and get one shipping worldwide. The other thing is, you know how some people are like, oh, you should leave me a review of the podcast. Definitely do that. If it's iTunes, if it's Spotify, if listen on Google, leave me a review. Let me know what you think. All right, that's it for this week. I've been Brandon Shaw. I'm still Brandon Shaw. Whatever. All right, I'll talk to you soon. See you in the next episode.